Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Spending some time reconnecting with nature this summer? Here's a camping hack from L.L. Bean to make your next trip the best yet. When putting together your gear, wrap a piece of duct tape around your water bottle. It's barely noticeable, but if another piece of gear breaks or tears, pull off your tape to make a quick patch or repair. For more camping hacks, visit youtube.com slash L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver. And today, we will be recapping the Showtime card from this previous Saturday evening. I will talk about my 32nd greatest fighter of the last 45 years, as I've written on the FightGameMedia.com website. Um, currently, I'm doing my 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years. On the website, my number 13th fighter of the last 45 years, Roberto Duran, was released. Well, what I'm doing is I'm in audiobook fashion for those who are listening for the first time, are reading my top. I'm reading my top 45 of the last 45 years, and I'm up to number 32 which is today, Azuma Nelson. I'm up to number 32 on the podcast, up to number 13, Roberto Duran, in written form, article-wise, on the FightGameMedia.com website. Also, I have a Patreon show on the Fight Game Media Patreon podcast feed. For $5 a month, you could read my greatest upsets of the last I don't know, of all time, not just the last 45 years, but of all time, and including my weekly boxing upset podcast, you have great coverage, the best coverage of professional wrestling and MMA from any website, from experts like J.D. Oliva, Gary Gonzalez, Justin Nipper, Fumi Saito and a host of other a host of others uh John LaRocca all right and they do everything they cover AEW WWE MLW NWA UFC Bellator the whole 
the whole gamut. They run the whole gamut of mixed martial arts, combat sports, professional wrestling, etc. So, guys, check it out. If you're a non-boxing fan and could care less about my Patreon show, you are a wrestling fan if you're listening to this podcast and the other shows on the free podcast feed. Check out the Patreon podcast feed. And one last plug, Fight Game Media is also on YouTube. And not only do they post uh, up-to-date information and breaking news on on professional wrestling, as you guys know, Vince McMahon's dick is running amok throughout the world. They are covering Vince McMahon's uh, uh, sexual exploits, both legal and illegally, on that YouTube channel. And you get to hear snippets of my 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years on the YouTube channel. They uh, they break it down where they just have clips of me reading in audiobook f- uh, fashion without having uh, to listen to the entire program. So you can check out the YouTube channel. Now, on to Saturday night's action that was broadcast on Showtime. You guys know how I've been lauding uh, Frank the Ghost Martin, great up-and-coming lightweight contender. He reminds me so much of a young Mark Two Sharp Johnson, sort of, sort of a hybrid between Mark Two Sharp Johnson and Stevie Little but Bad Johnston, two great softballs who used movement, defense, to combinations. I'm going to lean more towards Mark because Frank is now becoming a bigger puncher. Stevie Little but Bad Johnston was a stylist who didn't have much of a punch. Frank Johnson had started, I mean Frank Johnson, I apologize, Ghost. Frank the Ghost Martin had started off as a slick boxer. Now he has added beautiful punching power to his arsenal, including tremendous body punching. He took on his toughest opponent Saturday night in Jackson Mourinho's. Mourinho's a last second replacement for Ricardo Nunez. A tougher fight for Frank. Um, for Frank, usually when you get a replacement, it's a, it's a live zombie. Not Jackson Mourinho's, who lost his uh, last two fights. He got robbed against uh, Raleigh the rapist Romero. Totally beat up Romero, and they, they gave the ra- rapist a gift decision. And then he was pounced on in his last fight against lightweight contender Richard Comey. Comey, a power-punching uh, a fighter with a nice right cross. But kudos to Mourinho's because for the first six rounds against the Ghost, Frank Martin, he fought Martin evenly. I had to fight even after six rounds. He's about three, four inches taller than Frank Martin, and so Frank Martin had to adjust. And Mourinho's fought tall and stayed in the pocket, didn't do any movement, and... He forced Frank to fight. So what did Frank Martin do? And I think Frank Martin, and I've said it over and over again, is going to be one of the five best fighters of the next 10 years. The man has incredible boxing skill, right? He adjusted. And 
you didn't see a lot of movement from Frank Martin like you normally did. He started going to the body, and he beat Mourinho's body throughout the entire fight because he saw that against a taller fighter, his right jab and combination um, punches that he usually executes and excels with wasn't working but the body on a taller fighter is always open and he kept going to the body throwing beautiful hooks to the body and beginning in round seven began to land more and more combinations because of the body punching same thing in round eight finally round nine because of those beautiful hooks to the body that left cross of martin was working down the pipe he staggered Mourinho's late in round nine and dropped him with a nice left hook in the corner with 10 seconds left in the round. Mourinho's got up and the bell saved him. Round 10, Martin came out. He worked the body. And then this time, it was a flurry of right hooks that dropped Mourinho's. Referee had no choice but to stop the fight. Frank Martin, with not only his most difficult fight, but his most impressive victory. And now there's talks of him fighting Raleigh, the rapist Romero. Let's get it on, baby. He's going to give the rapist a beating. Let's get that fight going. I want to see that fight. And eventually I want to see in 18 to 24 months, Frank Martin fight tank in what will be a tremendous fight. Okay. Um, I'll save my prediction until they fight each other. But that's the fight I want to see if Tank doesn't fight the other elite lightweights. He's got a ready-made opponent in the Ghost Martin in 18 to 24 months. And now on to the semifinal fight of the card. Brandon Figueroa going up against Carlos Castro in a featherweight, uh, in a featherweight contender fight. Carlos Castro was a good fighter. Uh, he's just got a lot of bad luck. But he gave Brandon Figueroa hell. And why? Brandon Figueroa has become more and more like his older brother, Omar. Brandon showed so much uh, talent early in his career. He's still got a lot of talent. But he doesn't give a damn about defense anymore. It's now trying to outpunch you, trying, trying to outland you. But he gets hit far too often. Like in his last fight against Steve, Stephen Fulton, he lost that fight because he couldn't stop Fulton from banging his body and landing combinations. Yeah, Figueroa got his off, but he could not stop Fulton from landing his shots. In this fight, Castro hit him too many times. Yes, Figueroa went to the body well and dropped um Castro in the third round with beautiful shots to the body. Yes, I agree. But then after Castro survived the third round, rounds four and five, Castro dominated because he hit Figueroa at will. And in the sixth round, he was dominating the sixth round until he got caught with a beautiful right cross, staggered, and then um, Figueroa threw a whole bunch of punches while I don't agree with the stoppage, the referee stopped the fight. Castro up against the ropes getting mauled. I don't believe Castro was hurt, but he was not defending himself. So while I don't think it was a the the stoppage should have should have been warranted there, I blame that on Castro and he blew an opportunity because he was giving 
Figueroa hell. Figueroa at featherweight? I don't know. But I tell you one thing, it will be an incredible fight between him and the guy who won the main event, and that's Ray Vargas. Ray Vargas beat Mark Masayo via 12 round. I don't know why this was a split decision. This was not a hard fight to score except for the first two rounds. Mark Masayo defending his WBC criminal cartel sanctioning by the alphabet title at featherweight against Ray Vargas. First two rounds could have gone either way. Very tough to score. But from rounds three to eight, it was all Vargas because Moxeo has no defense whatsoever. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, Moxeo was way behind and needed a one-punch knockout to beat Julio Ceja and then barely beat a one-armed Gary Russell to win the title. You guys are overhyping Moxeo. He's not that good. He's a solid fighter who's had good luck and he's being propped up because Manny Pacquiao's his promoter and Freddie Roach is his trainer. Well, once again, Freddie Roach, you were out-trained by the legendary Nacho Beristain, one of the five greatest trainers of all time. Right? He put the perfect pl- uh, pro- uh, program in for Vargas to dominate because from rounds three to eight, Vargas, who's much taller than Maxeo, Stayed outside and countered Moxeo at will with left jabs, hooks off the jabs, and right crosses while Moxeo recklessly tried to go inside and he tried to knock out Vargas with one shot. He abandoned his jab and he was just getting hit at will and Vargas was teeing off on him. Moxeo's lucky that Vargas does not have great punching power. Vargas hasn't knocked anybody out in six years. Vargas' first eight rounds was just drilling Moxeo. Then in the ninth round, Moxeo, Freddie Roach told him, look, you you got to step it up. And late in the round, Moxeo staggers and drops Vargas with a beautiful right cross. And Vargas survived the round. In ninth round, Vargas was shaky. And this was Moxeo's opportunity to... Finish off Vargas because Vargas was was hurt the entire ninth round. What did Moxeo do? Headhunt. He didn't go to the body. Had he gone to the body against Vargas like he failed to do against Russell, he would have stopped Vargas in the ninth round. No, he headhunts. He landed a nice right hand again that hurt uh, Vargas in the ninth round, but he couldn't finish the job. Once Vargas got his legs back on on. Under him, ninth and 10th round, I gave to Moxeo. Ninth round because he knocked down Vargas. 10th round because Vargas was still on shaky leg. Even though he outworked Moxeo, he was hurt by the more significant punches in that round. Rounds 11 and round 12 was all Vargas as he hit um, Moxeo at will. Moxeo was now exhausted from trying to go after the one-punch knockout. And it was all Vargas as he landed combination after combination. Sweeps the last two rounds on all three scorecards. Wins by split decision. I don't know what the one judge was looking at scoring the fight for Moxeo. Because there's no way in the world Moxeo won six rounds in that fight. At the most, he won four rounds in which what two judges gave him. I gave him two rounds. But then again, you could have given him four because the first two rounds could have gone either way. So 
kudos to the two judges that that scored the fight correctly, and the one judge should be suspended because there's no way in hell that uh, Moxell won six rounds. And Moxell, very, very polite and gentlemanly, very classy at the, at the post-fight uh, interview. He said that Vargas was the better man tonight. He knew. He knew, and um, kudos to him because nine times out of ten on a split decision loss when you were lucky to get one judge to 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 rule in your favor ah oh, man i don't know i don't know what he was looking at i wanted to fight yeah, we heard we've heard adrian broner and um taylor lopez do that bullshit in the past anyway congratulations to vargas vargas versus figueroa would be a very entertaining fight Vargas versus Leo Santa Cruz would be a very entertaining fight. Those are two fights readily made for Vargas as he's under the PBC umbrella like those other two fighters. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, later on in the program, I will be doing an answer questions, uh, question and answer session like I did last week and talk about the, the Ioka Nietes fight that is happening Tuesday morning. I'm recording this Sunday morning. So, ladies and gentlemen, I will uh, come back. Later on in the program, you won't know that I'm recording this on two different days, but I'm going to do my 32nd greatest fighter of the last 45 years per, uh, profile right now, and then I will come back with the question and answer session, and then I will come back with my take on the Ioka Nietes fight. Now, on to... My 32nd greatest fighter of the last 45 years, the Professor Azuma Nelson. From the first time I saw Azuma Nelson, the night my father took me to see his American debut at Madison Square Garden against the legendary Mexican Salvador Sanchez on July 21st, 1982, I knew he was destined for greatness. It was one of the few times in boxing history that a fighter won despite losing. For the next 16 years, Nelson accomplished more than any other Ghanaian or African fighter in the history of boxing, culminating in the professor being the 32nd greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Not only was Nelson a complete unknown going into his fight against Sanchez, he only had 13 career fights. 
I told my father this guy had no business being in the ring with an experienced great like Sanchez. By the way, I was 14 years old at the time, feeling myself, and my father had to uh, correct me. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why, as I read. Although at 24, Nelson was a year older than San Sanchez, his 13 fights paled in comparison to the legendary Mexican's 45 fights. Sanchez was also making the ninth defense of his WBC featherweight title. I was expecting a short main event. My father explained to me that every African he ever saw fight, Cornelius Bose Edwards, Dick Tiger, Ayub Kaluli, etc., were warriors who always came to fight. As great as Sanchez was, my father stated that Nelson had one advantage, which was that Sanchez didn't know what type of fighter he was facing. Nelson knew exactly what kind of fighter he was facing in Sanchez. This turned out to be pr prophetic as Nelson gave Sanchez the toughest fight of his career before finally succumbing to the champion's will in the 15th and final round. When Sanchez tragically died three weeks later, my father predicted that Nelson would be the next dominant 126-pound 126, 126 world champion. It would take him over two years to get another shot at the title. Despite dealing with the unknown, Sanchez dominated the first three rounds by staying outside and landing several crisp combinations. Late in the third round, Sanchez stunned Nelson with a right cross right down the middle. Nelson, despite losing the first three rounds, kept coming and landed some of his own hard right crosses. Rounds four and five saw Nelson finally cut off the ring and lure Sanchez into a slugfest. Nelson landed several cracking shots to the head and body. Sanchez landed several shots of his own, but was unable to keep the relentless African off of him. When the fifth round ended, my father and I both came to the conclusion that Nelson was indeed the real deal. While biding his time, Nelson would win his next six fights, five by knockout, before finally getting his next title shot, this time on December 8th, 1984, against Puerto Rican legend Wilfredo Gomez in Gomez's backyard of San Juan, Puerto Rico. The fight was televised in syndication back in the United States. My father and I watched this fight and knew that Gomez, one of my father's all-time favorite fighters and fellow Puerto Rican, was too shot-worn to beat the 26-year-old buzzsaw from Ghana. Nelson systematically broke down Gomez before finally putting him away in the 11th round and claiming the WBC featherweight title. My father and I, even though we love Gomez, were pleased with the result because we knew from the night he fought Sanchez that, that Azuma was going to be a special fighter. The victory over Gomez would be just the beginning. Nelson's toughest competition as a 126-pound champion was Marcos Villasana. Villasana gave everyone hell back then as he was a power-punching, iron-chin Mexican with tremendous intestinal fortitude. Nelson won two hard-earned decisions over Villasana while bulldozing the other four men he defended his title against during his three-year title run. Finally, on February 29, 1988, Nelson moved up to 130 pounds to fight for the title the legendary Julio Cesar Chavez had recently vacated. After defeating Mario Martinez on February 29, 1988 to win the vacant WBC Super Featherweight title, Nelson successfully defended his title 10 times over a 10-year period. Along the way, he fought not notable contenders, 
such as Gabrielle Ruelas, Calvin Grove, a rematch with Martinez, Jesse Jesse James Leha, and Jeff Fennick. Missing from that list was a potential unification title fight against IBF champ Brian Mitchell. Nelson refused to fight Mitchell because of Mitchell being from South Africa. Nelson was the pride and joy of Aqua Ghana and felt it was his obligation not to give an Mitchell an opportunity at unification because of South Africa's immoral apartheid regime. Nelson didn't want to, as he saw it, spit in the face of his oppressed black South Africans by rewarding Mitchell with a big money fight. Despite the fact that Mitchell never embraced South Africa's ruling class policies. It was another case of real life politics ruining what would have been a classic encounter between not only two of the greatest super featherweights of all time, but possibly the two greatest African boxers of all time as well. Unable to secure a fight with Mitchell, Nelson moved up to 135 to challenge Pernell Whitaker for his world lightweight title in an attempt to become a three-division champion. Sweet Pea's defense and speed was a puzzle that the professor could never solve as Whitaker completely baffled the Ghanaian icon in winning an easy decision. With Nelson's goal of becoming a three-division champion thwarted, he went back down on 130. On June 28, 1991, Nelson defended his 130-pound crown for the sixth time against three-division champion and undefeated Australian Jeff Fennick. At the time, Nelson was a month shy of his 33rd birthday, and Fennick had just turned 27. Many boxing experts felt Nelson was too strong and cagey for the aggressive Aussie. My father and I begged to differ. We had seen Fennec rip through each of his opponents, and his aggression and speed were at a level Nelson wasn't accustomed to. Also, Fennec at five foot seven was actually two inches taller than the Ghanaian great. On that evening, Fennec proved us right as he bullied, outmaneuvered, and outworked Nelson the entire fight. I had Fennec easily winning 9 of the 12 rounds and expected him to easily win the decision and capture his 4th world title. Unfortunately, Fennec was robbed as the fight was scored a draw. To this day, it is one of the 5 worst decisions I've seen in the history of boxing. Nelson, knowing that the vast majority of the boxing world knew he got away with a gift, consented, consented to a rematch, this time in Fennec's hometown. On March 1, 1992, in front of over 30,000 fans in Melbourne, Australia, Nelson accomplished what my father and I felt was impossible. He thoroughly outboxed and outclassed the legendary Australian. Nelson, in his finest performance, put on a counter-punching and body-punching clinic. He dazzled Fennec with in-and-out movement and used Fennec's aggression against him with pinpoint counter-punching. Nelson won every minute of every round as he completely completely lived up to his Professor Monica. Finally, in the eighth round, the referee put an end to the one-sided beating. Just like he did almost 10 years earlier against Sanchez in his American debut, Nelson made my father and I a believer. That was the night Nelson proved he was the greatest fighter ever to come out of the great continent of Africa. After two more successful defenses of his super lightweight title, Nelson engaged in the first of four fights with Jesse James Leha. The 28-year-old Leha was a poor man's Fennec, 
a very aggressive power who didn't possess the Aussie's flair and speed. However, just like the first Fennec fight, Nelson was thoroughly outclassed by the Texas native and was once again awarded with a gift draw. Eight months later, in an immediate rematch, Nelson was once again out for it, this time officially defeated by the younger challenger. Nelson's six-year reign at 130 was over. Nelson briefly retired before making a comeback 18 months later at the age of 37. On December 1st, 1995, the 37-year-old Nelson battled WBC 130-pound champion Gabriel Ruelas. I'm a, I, I apologize, Gabriel. Gabriel Ruelas. Despite defeating Ruelas a few years back, Nelson came in a huge underdog to the much younger and taller champion. Ruelas was coming off a tragic victory over Jimmy Garcia. Garcia took such a severe beating that he suffered brain damage and died 13 days after the fight. Nelson caught Ruelas at the right time. Ruelas seemed affected psychologically by the Garcia fight. As soon as round one commenced, Nelson jumped on Gabriel and batted the champion. Gabriel was never in the fight, causing the referee to stop the fight in the fifth round. Nelson regained his crown, and Gabrielle would never be the same again due to the beating Nelson administered and his psyche due to the Garcia tragedy. In his very first defense of his newly regained world title, Nelson sought to avenge his defeat to Leha. In a, in a performance similar to his title-winning effort against Gabrielle, Nelson once again turned back the clock in a convincing six-round stop at Jaleha. He was a man six weeks shy of his 38th birthday, putting on one of the greatest performances of his storied career. Unfortunately, it would be the final win of his career. In his very next fight, on March 22, 1997, Nelson lost a very tough split decision to Gennaro Hernandez. Then a year later, and eight days before his 40th birthday, Nelson fought listless in losing a 12-round decision in the fourth and rubber match against his greatest rival, Leha. He would make a questionable comeback 10 years later, losing a decision to Fennec in a battle of the senile legends. Azuma Nelson set a standard for fighters from Ghana that, despite excellent fighters like Ike Quarte and Richard Comey, who also were born in Ghana, has yet to be replicated. Like several great champions, Nelson traveled the world in defending his title and convincingly defeated the hometown challenges. The Gomez and second Fennec fight being the greatest examples. Nelson was the most versatile super featherweight in the history of the underrated division. He also had one of the most underrated featherweight title reigns in boxing history. The professor would end his illustrious career with a record of 39 wins, 6 losses, 2 draws, with 28 KOs, and more than worthy of being the 32nd greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Now, ladies and gentlemen, on to my question and answer session. Okay, I'm back with the question and answer session. And the first two questions, oh, by the way, if you want to ask me questions that I will answer on the podcast, you could either email me, robertsilver57 at hotmail.com. You can DM me on Twitter, robertsilver5768, 
or you can go to the Twitter hashtag, Ask Rob Silver, and I will gladly answer your questions. And the first two questions are from Bilal, and Bilal asks, the, who are my top 10 Caribbean fighters of all time? And when he means Caribbean, he explained this to me. He's talking about all the Caribbean islands. He's not talking about North America or South America. He's talking Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Trinidad, uh, what you call it, uh, Barbados, the Bahamas, the Virgin Islands, Jamaica, etc. Now, out of all those islands, and this is very, very, there have been a lot of great fighters to come out of all those uh, islands and countries. So I'm not going to give you a top 10 by ranking. I'm just going to give you 10 great fighters that I believe belong on that top 10 list in no particular order, except one guy I will put at number one. And the guy that I'll put at number one, who I felt was the greatest out of all of them, is the greatest fight ever to come out of Jamaica, the body snatcher, Mike McCollum. He's my number one. Then you have the great Puerto Rican fighters that could go two or three in Felix Tito Trinidad and Rafredo Gomez. You have the great fighter from the Virgin Islands, the greatest fighter ever to come out of the Virgin Islands, in Emil Griffith. You've got Cuban legends, Kid Gavilan, uh, Kid Chocolate, that... Um, can easily be on that list and that's five and six so i got four other fighters who would i put because i don't want to being that i'm a black puerto rican i don't want to be biased and put a bunch of puerto ricans on that list but you can make an argument for a wilfred benitez and a carlos ortiz and i'm not going to continue there they'll fill out seven and eight i want to give uh some other fighters, some love in those. Let me see, who would who could fill out nine and 10? There are no Dominicans in history of boxing that belong in my top 10. And I apologize to you, Bilal. Bilal being a black Dominican. Bilal, I wouldn't put any of the Dominican fighters from the past, present, or future in my top 10. And let's go to, uh, if we if we want to continue with Cubans, oh, my bad, Jose Napolis. Jose Napolis. Definitely in my top ten, and we gotta get we gotta get one more, one more. Now, um, everybody knows I love uh, Trini women. My beautiful, beautiful baby is from Trin uh, from Trinidad. My, my the love of my life, and there have been some good Trinidad fighters, Trinidadian fighters, great Trini fighters. There have been some very good Trini fighters, but none worthy of being in my top 10 i'm not counting uh, guyana because guyana is actually not an island but a country inside south america but it's because of its culture considered part of the west indies but no i'm not putting anybody from guyana in my top 10 so i, I need to fill out one more spot what island am i missing santa dominican republic no Haitian, who's the greatest Haitian fighter of all time? Adonis Stevenson. But is he good enough to make my top 10? I don't believe so. 
Man, I don't want to throw another Puerto Rican in there. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. You know what? Let me just throw a Donna Stevenson in there. I mean, there. I mean, you could make an argument that Miguel Cotto, Joel Casamayor, uh, what's my brother's name that recently had an accident that ended his career. Oh, man, talk about talk about oh Guillermo Rigondeau. Been a lot of great Cuban fighters throughout the years, but I'll I'll put a Haitian in, and this will <laughs> this will help Bilal because Bilal loves Haitian fighters because Bilal recognizes Haitians and the Dominicans as all one big family since they share the same island. So there you go, uh, Bilal. I finally answered all the questions you sent me. Now, no, I'm sorry, Bilal. I got one more question for you. My bad. My bad. Bilal asks, other than Buster Douglas, what are some of the greatest upsets recorded by an unknown fighter over a great fighter? Well, I just spoke about Jose Napolis. One of the greatest upsets in boxing history was Billy Backus stopping him in the fourth round back in 1970. Billy Bacchus, an unknown fighter out, out of the Syracuse area in New York, upstate New York, shocked Apolis and shocked the boxing world by winning the welterweight title, albeit for a brief time, as Napolis beat the hell out of him in a rematch a few months later. Then you have, of course, Esteban de Jesus beating Roberto Duran in their first fight, November of 1972, a fight that I covered on the on the Patreon bonus uh, podcast that for $5 a month, you could hear my entire breakdown of that fight, November of 1972. Esteban de Jesus at the time was an unknown Puerto Rican, and Roberto Duran was one of the hottest fighters in the world, having won the title only five months previous against Ken Buchanan in Madison Square Garden. Of course, there was Ken Norton's shocking upset of Muhammad Ali in 1973. Ken Norton at the time was an unknown heavyweight. Even Howard Cosell, who was a huge boxing fan and followed the sport, and especially the heavyweight division, touched briefly on his earlier fights, but really didn't go into a huge detail as he was announcing that fight. Um, then you have... Uh, Lloyd Hunnigan's six-round stoppage of Donald Curry, another fight that I covered on the Patreon podcast. Now, Hunnigan was very well-known in Great Britain in the UK, but in America, no one knew about him. No one at all knew about Lloyd Hunnigan unless you was a, you were a hardcore boxing fan. The casual fan knew of Curry because at, at that point in time, Curry was considered one of the two best fighters in the world alongside marvelous Marvin Hagler. So that answers your quest your questions, Bilal. Once again, man, I appreciate Bilal's been listening to me on several of my platforms for several, several years. Several years. Several years. And shout out to the to uh, to the brother Bilal. Now God damn Bilal got another question. My bad Bilal. Let me answer this question. Bilal asks about John the Beast Mugabe and some of his greatest fights. Well, to be honest with you, the fight that you posted 
on Twitter, his fight against uh, James Hard Rock Green, that that would be one of them. But Mugabe was a one-dimensional power puncher. John Mugabe was a lot like James Kirkland, where he had incredible punching power, but that was it. He wasn't a great boxer. He was a great puncher. He could be beaten by a great boxer. Now, um, Hard Rock Green was one of his biggest and greatest wins. Frank the Animal Fletcher. But these guys were shop-worn contenders. These guys had absolutely no shot at beating the Beast. But I give the Beast credit. When he fought Marvelous Marvin Hagler in March of 1986, he gave Hagler hell. It was because of Hagler's incredible chin in which allowed Hagler to overcome Mugabe's biggest shots because Mugabe landed some monster rights and lefts in that fight against Hagler. But Hagler wore down Mugabe, stopped him. And you could make a case that Mugabe was never the same after that fight against Hagler because he took such a ferocious beating in trying to knock out Hagler. Great fight. Great fight. The last win of Hagler's career as he would lose his title 13 months later to Sugar Ray Leonard and never fight again. But in Mugabe's very next fight, he fought Dwayne Thomas for the vacant WBC uh, super welterweight title that Thomas Hearns had vacated. And Dwayne Thomas beat the holy hell out of John the Beast Mugabe, stopping him in the third round. Now, Mugabe would eventually win a world title when he, uh, three years later, on July 8th, 1989, would knock out Rene Jacot, Jacquot, Jacquot, Rene Jacot in the first round. But that was more of Jacquot breaking his leg while throwing a punch awkwardly. He snapped his tibula in two and couldn't continue. Mugabe was the world was finally world champion due to a freak accident. In his very first defense on March thirty first, nineteen ninety, Mugabe came back down to life, shown that he was done, as terrible Terry Norris began a seven year run as the best junior middleweight in the world by knocking out John the Beast Mugabe in the very first round. And Mugabe was never the same after that. He would get knocked out in the first round a year later by Gerald McClellan. And for all intents and purposes, he was done until finally retiring in 1999 at the age of 39. Now, thank you, Bilal, for that question. On to other questions from the hashtag AskRobSilva. Okay, let me go down. And I think I have one more question. All right, here's from Will Davis. And Will asks, let me ask you this. What did you think when Floyd had the fight when the dude was apologizing and he knocked him out? In your opinion, clean or dirty? I go back and forth all the time on it. I appreciate your boxing opinion, and it might give me some clarity. That was the fight against Victor Ortiz, where Victor Ortiz headbutted Floyd. Referee Joe Cortez stopped the fight, took a point away from Ortiz for 
a blatant, blatant foul. He was headbutting Floyd out of frustration because Floyd was dominating. And then um, Ortiz ignorantly tried to uh, shake hands with Floyd when Cortez yelled for the fight to continue. And Floyd still pissed off because Ortiz tried to headbutt him on purpose, landed a beautiful combination as Ortiz had his guard down because he was looking to shake Floyd's hands, touch gloves, when that was <laughs> that was uncalled for. And Floyd put Ortiz to sleep, ended the fight. Victor Ortiz got what he fucking deserved, right? He had no, first of all, he had no business fighting Floyd. People actually thought Ortiz had a shot at beating Floyd. Ortiz was a one-dimensional fighter, a brawler. His skill set was limited. A guy like that never would ever have a shot against Floyd. And Floyd was schooling him until, out of frustration, Ortiz headbutted Floyd. Cortez deducts a point. Cortez says continue, and Ortiz tries to touch, tries to, you know, because he knew he was wrong, tried to touch gloves, shake hands again with Floyd. And Floyd dropped his ass. Good night, Ortiz. Did us all a favor because it would have been a long-standing, one-sided mastery of Floyd like he always did back then throughout his entire career. But instead, he put Ortiz and the fans out of their misery by putting that one-dimensional bum out of his uh, misery. And Ortiz would never amount to anything for the rest of his career. And that... And that um ends the answer and question the question and answer session i will i will be back with my synopsis of the ioka nietes fight just finished watching what was a tremendous tactical battle between two of the greatest fighters ever to fight below 118 pounds Kazuto Ioka defending his WBO super flyweight title against former WBO super flyweight uh, champion and the man who beat him in their first fight, one of the greatest fighters ever to come out the country of the Philippines, Don Inietes. Their first fight was a very strategic battle in which Nietes barely won in a fight that could have gone either way. This time... It was a much more dominant effort by Ioka. Ioka smartly, intelligently, in a game of chess, went to Nietes' body over and over again. The first six rounds, I had Ioka winning four of the first six rounds. Because he was pressing Nietes, and Nietes, one of the best defensive fighters of this generation, of the in the twenty first century, I would put Nietes third as far as greatest defensive fighters of this century. Only Floyd and Shakur Stevenson I've seen were definitely definitively better defensively than the great Don Nietes, and this is only his second loss. At the age of 40, it's time, I believe, for Nietes to retire. But before I go into that, let me continue uh, my analysis of this tremendous strategic battle.
This was boxing at a very high level. This wasn't one of those great fights in which two guys are going after each other without without any defense applied. Both men were trying their darndest to outpoint the other one by fighting defensively, and both men were fighting behind that jab. And yet this jab was landed for six rounds, but so was Ioka. Ioka was the aggressor, but everything was off that jab. Everything was off that jab, and he was jabbing with Nietes, but instead of trying to hit Nietes's, uh head, Nietes has in- incredible head movement. His head moves like a bobblehead. He was digging devastating hooks to the body, and it was wearing down Nietes. But you wouldn't have known by the way Nietes fought in round seven and nine, landing beautiful combinations, landing some great right crosses, while I, and I gave Nietes round seven and nine, and I gave Ioka round eight. So after nine rounds on my scorecard, I had Ioka only winning by one point, 86-85. Then the turning point, round 10, Ioka, who was going to the body all fight long, landed a beautiful left hook, right cross combination because the old saying goes, a saying that my father used to always tell me and a, a, a saying that he learned, and this saying is from the early 1900s, kill the head and the body will follow. He landed a beautiful left hook, right cross combination in the 10th round that opened up a huge gash above the left eye of Nietes in the temp- and this was in the 10th round and rounds 10 11 and 12 it was all Ioka as he was attacking not only the body but he was attacking the cut eye and he was landing at will I had never seen Nietes in his entire career get hit as much as he did in those last three rounds Ioka sweeps those three rounds on my scorecard. I had it 116-112 Ioka. Ioka wins the rematch, retains his title, and now what's next fight? Ioka. He's got several options because right now the super flyweight division is one of the hottest divisions in boxing. The 115-pound division is right up there with the welterweights and the super welterweights and the lightweights as the most exciting division in boxing. Super flyweight division now, you have Ioka, you have the brothers Joshua Franco and Bam Rodriguez, you have Juan Francisco Estrada, and you've got the great Chocolatito, Roman Gonzalez. So you've got five strong fighters for in great matchups for all except one. Joshua Franco and Bam Rodriguez are, are brothers. They're, they're biological brothers. They're not fighting each other. But those guys could fight any of the other three fighters. I would love to see it. And Ioka would be a heavy underdog against all those fighters. But he'd be a live underdog in my book because the man is a tremendous boxer puncher. Everything's done off that jab. He's a great body puncher. For those who want to learn how to throw right, uh, uh, correct body punches, for those out there who are up-and-coming amateur boxers that listen to this program, I know I have a few amateur boxers out there that that listen to this program, watch the way Ioka worked Nieta's body. It was a master class in body punching. He eventually wore Nieta's down. 
And he deservedly won this fight. Now, one judge gave him all 12 rounds. Hell fucking no. He didn't win all 12 rounds. He wasn't that dominant. The fight was very, very close for the first nine rounds. Because there were several rounds that could have gone either way. He gave every round to uh, Ioka. What about round seven and nine when Nietes was painting him with beautiful right crosses off that jab? Now, I don't see it. Anyway, tremendous victory. For Kazuto, Kazuto Ioka, it's time for him to step up and now fight. Now, now that he beat the guy who beat him in his in, in his second loss for this title, and now that's out the way, it's time for Ioka to face one of the other four major super flyweights. And as far as Donnie Nietzsche goes, historically, I've got him probably number four or three. You can make an argument for three or four of the greatest Filipino fighters of all time. And real quick, I'll run down my top four. I've got either Nietes, Donnie Nietes, or Flash Elordi at four or three, whoever you want to flip a coin. Number two is the Filipino Flash, Nonino Donaire. And number one, of course, recently retired Manny Pacquiao. Those are my four greatest Filipino fighters. Nietes, in my opinion, should be a first ballot International Boxing Hall of Famer. We will see because uh, they keep making mistakes as far as who they've been inducting lately. We will see. We will see. Donnie Nietzsche's had a great career. Won titles at 105, 108, 112, and 115. Ioka has won titles at 105, 108, 112, and 115. So this was a battle of multi-division champions fighting each other, and what gave Ioka the edge was at 33, he was seven years younger than Nietes, who's now 40 and should retire. He should never fight again. He fought a great fight considering his age and considering the opposition. Go out on your shield, baby. Retire, Donnie Nietes. I don't want to see you wind up like other fighters. And while you're at it, tell your compatriot, Filipino Flash, no need to to retire also. There's nothing left for either of you great Filipino men. To prove you guys have put in incredible work, incredible careers, and this has been a long podcast. I will talk to you, great people, next week. Once again, if you want, if you have any questions, hashtag Ask Rob Silver on Twitter. Until next week, be blessed and be a blessing. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.